Welcome back to the Tipsy Ghost. We're your tipsy hosts, Sarah, Sarah, and Lindsay. Hey, guys. Hi. So I have just something cute to tell you before we start. Okay. Um, the other day, I was not feeling so great. And um, physically, mentally, you know, probably all of the above, but most importantly, physically, I was okay. not feeling well. And um, I come out from the bathroom and Beckett goes, oh, Mom, I, I turned on your favorite show, Aww. The Office. Because <laughs> I know you weren't feeling good. Is that not the sweetest thing? So you know, sweet. He asked me where to find it. He was like, we're going to find it, like trying to be all sneaky. I'm like, it's on the Peacock app. So he had to search it up, go find it, turn it on. As soon as I walk out, he hits play and he's all proud of himself. He's like the best boyfriend. Is that not the sweetest thing? Yeah. That is cute. And then on top of that, he pretended to enjoy the entire first episode. The first episode's epic. It is. It's good. But a lot of it was like way over oh, his yeah. head. I hope so. Yes. Yeah. I started cracking up when Dwight says, tit for tit. <laughs> and he looks at me and he's like, why is that funny? And I was like, well, you know, it's a saying, it's a tit for tat, but it's funnier when you say tit for tit. He's like, okay. So anyhow, it wasn't as funny because you had to explain all the jokes, but it's still really sweet. I thought that was precious. It's adorable. It's okay. Well, I'm glad we got some good stuff in the episode because we're about to bring it down. Bring it down. Several notches. Taking it down. All right, so you guys should definitely listen to last week's episode because this is our part two about Charles Manson and the Manson family murders. So last week, we kind of covered Charles Manson, his beginning, the cult following the family, kind of where he got to the point right up to the murders. Right. So I left off talking about the Gary Hinman murder in Manson's attempt to remain in control of the group. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in here and trigger warnings all around. I mean, I feel like if you're listening to a Manson episode, you know that it's about to get really graphic mm-hmm. pretty quickly. But people um, are going to die. In case you don't know. Spoiler. Yes. Sorry. It's <laughs> not. Is it a spoiler when it happened yes. in the 60s? Yeah. Okay. It is. Just because people take a while to come around to things doesn't mean that they don't deserve spoiler alerts. Okay, okay, okay. Maybe they were just born and they haven't heard it yet. Yeah. Lindsay's going to give us an overview really quick of the some important key players. Key players. Um, Step one, Charles Manson. Charles Manson is number one. Unfortunately. (laughs) All right. So key members of his family, Charles Tex Watson. And he is Tex because he is from Texas. True statement. Bobby <laughs> Boussoulet. Mm-hmm. You nailed it. Thank you. Mary Brunner. Susan Atkins. Linda Kasabian. Mm-hmm. Patricia Kreenwinkle. Leslie Van Houten. And Lynette Fromm, who goes by Squeaky. The Squeaks. Woo! All right. Those are people you need to know for this episode. And they are all family members of Manson's cult. Yeah. And she goes into a little bit more detail about each of them in part one. So if you're curious, go back. Go back and check it out. All right. So Manson, he approached Tex Watson and convinced him that he was the reason that Manson had to shoot lots of Papa. Remember lots of Papa. He lots was of the Papa drug dealer. had lots of Papa. Yeah. And he was kind of sparking the whole race war in Manson's mind and retaliation from the Black Panthers that wasn't actually happening, but he was convinced it was going to. The Helter Skelter. That's right. So Manson was asking Watson to return a favor. Um, And he did this kind of a lot where he kind of turned things on to the family members Mm -hmm. and either made things seem like their idea um, or, you know, kind of guilt trip them into certain things. Um, like, you owe me big time for this. I 
shot a man for you. You owe me. Which is a manipulation technique. Absolutely. And mind control. And he talked about whatever his weird words for mind control was. Mystical mind control. Oh, my God. Mystical manipulation. Mystical manipulation. I knew it was two M's. So the first target that Manson had in mind was tied to Terry Melcher. And he is a person we talked about a little bit in the first episode as well. But Terry was a music producer. And Manson, he had tried several times to get a music contract with Melcher. But Terry was not having it. And he basically just cut him off and was like, absolutely not. So this totally enraged Manson. And he was definitely holding a grudge against him. Mm Mm-hmm. Manson knew that Melcher used to own the property at 10050 Cielo Drive in Los Angeles. And although he didn't live there anymore, Manson knew that somebody rich and famous had to be at the house. And again, that was his target this time around. Had to be somebody rich and famous to get the attention of the police. So Manson wanted Watson to murder the residents at the house, but not to be blamed. They obviously don't want to take the blame for this. They want to put it onto the Black Panthers. So he managed to convince Watson that this was his idea by asking leading questions such as, don't you want to go to 10050 Cielo Drive? That's so specific. <laughs> well, it worked because he was like, I absolutely do. Absolutely. And this I is do. my idea only that I've come up with. So there you go. That's how that all got started. So Manson chose three women to go with Watson to the house. It was Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel. All four of them. So Manson was actually not in the car there. He just gave them the idea to go to this house and instructed them on what to do. All four of the family members drove to the house on Cielo Drive on August 8th of 1969. And the women actually didn't know why they were going to the house. Watson was the only one who knew what was Mm. going on. So the person living at the house was Sharon Tate. She was an American actress and married to Rowan Polanski. And at this time in August of 1969, she was eight months pregnant with her first child. And Roman was away um, filming a movie. So she had a few friends come stay the night with her, which was pretty common for her to do. So, man, I might butcher this name, but it's Wojciech Frakowski. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds it, right. Um, I think Frakowski is right for sure. Yeah. Um, and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, that name might sound familiar because she was the best part of waking up. She was part of that heiress of the uh, Folger's company is Folger's in your cup. That is a true statement. She was also a social worker. Oh, I know. Another person at the house staying the night was a man by the name of Jay Sebring. And he was a celebrity hairstylist and also Sharon's ex. But they were friendly exes. Everything was fine. The other person who just happened to be at the house, and we'll kind of get to that here in a second, was a young boy, like an 18-year-old, named Steve Parent. So he was actually just trying to sell a clock to the house's caretaker who lived in the guest house. So the day, back up to the daytime, it was pretty uneventful. The group of people, so Sharon and her friends, they went to dinner and they came home. And Abigail and Wojcik went to bed. Sharon and Jay stayed up talking late. And around 12.15 a.m., Steve, our 18-year-old, he left the guest house. So he had gone to the guest house to try to sell a clock and had no luck. So 12.15 a.m., he left. Around the same time, Watson and the three women from the Manson family showed up at the house. 
They cut the phone lines, and this is when Watson informed the women that they would be killing everyone in the home. And surprisingly, they had no problem with it because this is something that Manson had asked them to do, Mm -hmm. and they were going to do as he asked. So as they are going up the driveway, they see a car coming down the drive and approach the car, which was driven by 18-year-old Steve Parent. Steve rolled down the window and begged them not to shoot him, but Watson shot Steve four times, and Steve died instantly. The group then approached the house to try to find an entry point and noticed that a window was left halfway open. They cut the screen and entered the house. This is when Watson told Linda Kasabian to go back down to the road to be the lookout for the cops. So she did. Once the rest of them entered the house, they found Frakowski sleeping on the couch. Watson kicked him hard in the head and said, quote, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Susan Atkins went around the house looking for others inside of the house. She found Sharon, Abigail, and Jay and brought them to the living room at knife point. Watson tied a rope around Jay's neck, threw it over a beam, and tied the other side to Sharon's neck. Jay started screaming about the mistreatment of his pregnant friend, Sharon, and Watson shot him in the stomach. Watson demanded money because, again, he assumed that somebody rich and famous lived here. Mm -hmm. So Abigail gave him the $70 in cash that she had on hand, (laughs) but this was not enough, and this just actually enraged him even more. He took this out on Jay, and he stabbed Jay repeatedly until Jay died while the other three watched. Furkowski was able to free his hands and attempted to make his way to the door, but remember that he probably had a concussion from being kicked in the head, so he wasn't moving super fast, and Susan Atkins was able to catch up with him and stabbed him repeatedly in the legs. Watson then chased after him out the front door and stabbed him repeatedly in the front yard. At this time, Linda Kasabian could see what was happening in the front yard, and so she, I guess, developed a conscience at that moment and decided she was going to try to yell at the group and say that there was uh, people coming in an effort to stop all this madness. But it did not work. Yeah. And I will add that the house, the way that it was positioned, like you could not see the house or the yard from the street. Like it had a gate and then you had to go down. So anybody driving by, not that anybody would be driving by in the middle of the night, but anybody driving by would not have seen them murdering these people. Yeah. And kind of just to add on to that, you know, some people might ask, like, how did they even get in? Because the house, the driveway was gated, but Mm -hmm. it had a button to push, but that's all you had to do. You just had to push the button and it opened the gate. Yeah. There There wasn't anything special. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody could come in or out. That's why, you know, Steve came up to try to sell the clock. Right. Okay. So yeah, she screamed at them that there were people coming in an effort to get it to stop, but it did not work. And sadly, Abigail tried to escape and she ran out into the front yard also, but was chased by Krenwinkel and she was also stabbed repeatedly. Watson then ordered Krenwinkel to go see if there was anybody in the guest house, um, but she decided she didn't really want to kill anyone else. So she stood out of sight for a few minutes, then came back and said nobody was there. And this is the major reason why the caretaker survived this whole attack. So that left Sharon Tate in the house. And sadly, she begged and pleaded to save her unborn baby's life. She even offered them to hold her hostage until the baby was born. 
and save the baby and kill her afterwards, but they were not having it. They gave her no mercy. Atkins stabbed Sharon Tate 16 times while she cried for her mother as she died. That guts me. At this point, everyone that they knew that was inside of the house was dead. The caretaker was still alive, but as they were told that there was nobody else left. Um, But they still had to do something, quote, witchy, as instructed by Manson to, you know, take the take the light off of them. So they wrote the word pig on the wall in blood because that was real witchy, I guess. It sounds witchy. It does kind of sound witchy in blood, but hmm. All right, so they left the house, and they threw their clothing that they were wearing and the murder weapon down a hill, then stopped at a Rudolph Weber's house in the yard to hose themselves off. And he noted what he saw, and that he just saw you know a couple people out there. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. said, noted. I will note that. Mental note. Comes into play later. <laughs> so... Things obviously didn't go that well. These guys, you know, were very messy. They left a lot of clues at the scene. So Manson decided to go back to the house himself and he tried to clean up the scene from fingerprints and he decided to lay out an American flag near Sharon's corpse. He thought this might send a message. I don't know what the message would have been, but that's what he thought. So he was pretty annoyed, though, that after a day or two that the cops started had not started to put together that the Black Panthers were responsible for the murders, even though they weren't. You know, he's trying to point him in this direction. They're just not picking up on it. So he should have just left a note that said this is the Black Panthers. Love the Black Panthers. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Heart. A little heart. Heart. The Black Panthers. Yikes. So, you know, he's getting pissed. He's like, damn it. What else can I do here? Ugh, he's awful. So August 9th, 1969, Manson took several members of the family to the house of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. So Manson picked them because he assumed that they were rich. Again, he's on to this money thing and would get the attention of the police. Side note, that didn't work out so well in the first one. So I don't know what his thought process is, but try again. LSD. Manson and Watson entered the house through an unlocked back door. They woke up the couple after some wrestling and talking and assured them that this would just be a robbery and they were not there to kill them. Watson covered the couple's heads with pillowcases and moved Rosemary into the bedroom. Manson then left the house and then sent the women inside the bedroom where Rosemary was. Watson began stabbing Lino with a bayonet. Yeah, bayonets Where and swords? do you get a bayonet? I don't know. In the 60s. Is he it had the 60s a, still? It's 69. He had yeah. swords and bayonets. Listen. He, this did, is he have intense. A, did he have a musket too? Probably. I doubt that. You d- it's not fast enough you to doubt, reload. You doubt musket, but bayonet is... He didn't use guns to kill people, really. No. He was more of the stabbing Stabber. variety. Yeah. Except for uh, lots of papa. But he didn't kill That's him. true. But he didn't, didn't kill him. Mm-hmm. That's why the gun didn't work. So he went switched to bayonets and swords. He's like, this is not working. <laughs> Let's take it back a few centuries. Mm-hmm. All right. So again, he was, he, Watson was stabbing Lino in the living room with a bayonet when he heard commotion coming from the bedroom. And when he walked in, he found Rosemary swinging a lamp at the other two women. So he decided to stab her with the bayonet and just went on back into the living room and continued to stab Lino 12 more times. Hmm. Lots of rage killing. Oh, my gosh. I know. The women who were with Rosemary in the bedroom, they stabbed her repeatedly until she died. 
The group wanted to make sure that this crime scene was way more dramatic than the last one. So they wrote the words rise and death to pigs on the walls and the words helter skelter on the refrigerator door. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to think it's the Beatles. <laughs> they made their way over. <laughs> uh, Watson also carved the word war into Lino's stomach and Krenwinkel stuck a fork in his abdomen and a knife in his throat. Pretty messy. Pretty mm-hmm. brutal. So during this time, Manson was driving around with the other members of the family, trying to find another target that same night. But this did not end up happening. So this was the end, or so they know, of their killing spree. So just a few possible motives, and one we've talked about several times, and the main one is the thought of Helter Skelter. And that is the thought about this race war and the uprising of African Americans. And Lindsay talked about it in good detail in episode one. The other theory is that of a copycat. So some say that the Tate and LaBianca murders were copycat murders of Gary Hinman with the goal of distracting police to also get Bobby Boussoulet out of jail. All Bobby. Bobby must be really important to them. Must have been. You know, it's interesting. And they wanted him out of jail because they didn't want him to talk. So what, they kill more people. How right. does this make it make sense? But they also, like, obviously are posting Beatles lyrics at every crime scene. So it's like you're Are connecting you the Beatles? Them. Yeah. Well, like you're connecting them. You're showing that these crimes yeah. are connected. Well, and the last one, which actually probably is a is an option, is drugs. And a lot of people say that Jay Sebring and Vote Frakowski, we're just going to go with that. Mm-hmm. They were dealing drugs and thought that maybe there was a drug deal gone wrong with Charles Watson and Manson. Yeah. All right. So... Obviously, the murders make national news pretty much right away, Um, especially because Sharon Tate is married to Roma Polanski, and they are both very famous, so this goes viral. The housekeeper, Winifred Chapman, she was actually the one to discover the bodies. She arrived for work the next morning at about 8 a.m., and I am going to take a quick pause to say that I got a lot of this information from Helter Skelter, the true story of the Manson murders. It is a book that is written... I have not finished it because it is thick, but it is thick. written by Vincent Bolglosi. <laughs> I totally butcher that name because of the moonshine. Bolglosi? Because of the moonshine. We just ingested a moonshine. And it's already making my tongue <laughs> dance a little dance. <laughs> These are words I've not heard you, hear you say. <laughs> Sarah's tripping too. Tripping? Did you drop some acid in the <laughs> banana moonshine? I like it. Lindsay's never said any of those words. Tripping? I know. <laughs> Anyways. Yes, I'm not tripping for anybody else out there. I'm not on LSD. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He's the prosecuting attorney for the case, so it is a very informative book. Okay. Winifred Chapman. So she arrives on the scene um, and immediately sees some cars that she doesn't recognize, and then she sees the two bodies, obviously, on the front lawn. It's just, even reading it, like, years later, the first police who responded were not homicide detectives. Like, they were just close and responded, and they talk about just how they couldn't even recognize these people and how gruesome it was. Um, And the first person who came who did identify them, basically, who was a friend of them, 
identified all their bodies and then like went and was like vomiting in the street because he was so horrified and winifred chapman um the housekeeper she was able to identify some of them but they said she was so hysterical she actually had to go to the hospital to be sedated oh so very tragic um she discovered the murder scene discovered the bodies immediately goes out and starts yelling for neighbors to call the police went to a next door neighbor's house and had them call police so the first victim, like you said, was Stephen Parent. He was um, visiting the guest house, William Gerritsen. He was staying in the guest house at the time. He was visiting him and had been literally leaving in his car when they arrived. So just horrible timing there. William Gerritsen, he was living in the guest house at the time. And he was initially held as a suspect. So the house was owned by Rudy Altabelli. And he was renting it out. William Gerritsen was living in the guest house, kind of taking care of the property while Sharon Tate and her friends were staying there. So William Gerritsen, they discover him. The police get there. There's three cops. They discover him in the guest house. And he denies knowing that anything had happened. He said he didn't see anything. He didn't hear anything the entire night. So they immediately take him in because obviously this is suspicious. Right. But to be fair... They said you could not hear gunshots from the guest house or even inside the house because nobody was disturbed. Yes. So they did say that. And really, the only person who was shot was Steve Parent. Mm -hmm. Everyone else was stabbed. But there were reports as well from different neighbors who reported hearing three or four gunshots, but then silence. And then there was also reports of there was like some Girl Scout or Boy Scout camping that was going on. And one of the chaperones was staying up all night to make sure everything was okay and heard the gunshots as well and even drove around but didn't see anything. So other people reported hearing these gunshots, but then William Gerritsen, who's in the guest house, excuse me, says he doesn't hear anything. Mm -hmm. So anyways, they take him in. He was released from custody on August 11th, a couple days later, because he did pass a polygraph. And when they were talking, sorry, about neighbors hearing things, one neighbor also reported that she heard a scream. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Some of this, because this was such a widely publicized case, maybe they said that later to get some media attention. Maybe they actually did. It's right. just kind of one of those inconsistencies between what William says happened and what other people report. Mm-hmm. But decades later, William Gerritsen was interviewed, and he stated that he had heard and seen some things that night, as police had initially suspected. Why he lied about it, why he hid it, Maybe because he was afraid that they would pin it on him. I don't know. Sure. Um, He died in August 2016, so I don't think we'll ever really know. So the La Bianca crime scene. So that was discovered at 10.30 p.m. on August 10th, so about 19 hours after the murder was committed. 15-year-old Frank Struthers, he was Rosemary's son um, from a prior marriage. He returned from a camping trip and thought it was odd that the shades and the windows were all drawn. So he called his sister and her boyfriend, and together they found Lino's body. Um, And they called the police, and the police found their mother's body. So kind of a little bit bright side there that they did not have to discover their own mother's body. But still very sad that a 15-year-old found his stepfather's body. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah. So two days later, on August 12th, LAPD told the press that it had ruled out any connection between the Tate and the La Bianca murders. A few days later, on August 16th, the sheriff's office decides to raid Spawn Ranch, which, if you remember from our first episode, this is where the Manson family is living. They arrested Manson and 25 others on totally unrelated charges because they thought that they were involved in an auto theft ring. 
essentially that they were stealing Volkswagen Beetles, because those were all the rage then, Yeah, and converting them to dune buggies. So they seized all of their weapons that they had at the ranch, but they released them all 48 hours later on a technicality because the warrant that they had had the wrong date on it. Ugh. But again, they didn't know that the sure. murders were connected to them, but still, they had them in custody. Yeah. So at the end of August, um, the detectives working the LaBianca case noted a connection for the first time between the bloody writings that you talked about at the house and the Beatles' most recent album of Helter Skelter and Death to Pigs. Mm-hmm. So the teams, there's two teams, one working the Tate case, one working the LaBianca case, and they are completely working separately. They do not think these are related. But then the LaBianca team, they start looking elsewhere, and they learn about the Hinman case that Sarah talked about in the first part of our, in our first part of Charles Manson. Yeah. So they learned that the Hinman detectives had actually spoken with a member of the Manson family, Susan Atkins. So at this time, Susan Atkins had confessed to some part in the killing of Gary Hinman. So she was sitting in jail. She befriended her cellmate, Virginia Graham. I watched in a documentary, Graham talked about how odd it was, how happy Atkins was. Like, she's in jail for potential murder, and she's just laughing and giggling and taking it all like it's not a big deal. Hmm. And eventually, Atkins confessed to Graham that she was involved with both the Tate and the LaBianca killings, and that the rest were hiding in the desert, and quote, this was not over. So Graham, even though she is also in jail, and I don't know what crime for, but she felt responsible and notified authorities immediately. And because of that is how we got the lead on the Manson family. So December 1st, 1969, and these murders happened in August. So about four months later, LAPD arrested Watson, Cranewinkle, and Kasabian. Manson and Atkins were already in custody, but still they have not connected these two cases yet. Or really even more. The Hinman case is not connected yeah. to them either. So the gun that was used um, in the Tate murders was recovered on September 1st, but it was not until December that LAPD finally connected the murders via the ballistics test. Don't ask me why it took three months for them to run the ballistics test on that gun. I mean, I don't know how fast things were moving in the 70s. Right. I don't know. I don't know. But you would think with a case that was national news, they would be working really hard on it. And then this also kind of blows my mind. A television crew found the bloody clothing that had been discarded by the Tate killers. The knives were never actually recovered except for one that was found in the cushion of a chair in the Tate living room, which was Susan Atkins knife. A television crew found the bloody clothing. Yeah, I remember reading too that maybe it was Susan that had lost her knife while she Susan was in there. Susan lost her knife. And so she went down and got Linda Kasabian's from her because she was like, you're not going to need it. You're on the lookout. Yep. And there and it was. It was in the couch cushion. That is something. the only knife that they were able to find. Huh. All right. So the trial began on June 15th of 1970. Who is on trial here? Obviously, Charles Manson is on trial. Um, Atkins is on trial and Cranewinkle as well. Tex, we're going to get to him later. But the prosecution's main witness was Linda Kasabian. Kasabian, because she indicted pretty much all of them. So she was granted immunity in exchange for her testimony since she did not actively participate in the killings. She was the lookout, if you remember Mm -hmm. from Sarah's story. So she testified for days, recalling the murders in graphic detail. And then 
essentially, once the case was over, went into hiding for the next 40 years and was not heard from. Wow. Which honestly, when I get to kind of the later part of this, I would too. (laughs) Yeah. Manson and the two women are on trial for seven counts of murder each and one of conspiracy. So Manson is still controlling the girls throughout this entire trial. Every day they would meet and he would give them instructions and tell them how to act in court and they would remain completely obedient to him. They would giggle and laugh throughout their interviews and they seemed completely out of touch with reality. It also said that they were still able to take LSD while they were in jail. This was a very, very, very long trial. Yeah. The rest of the family hung out outside of the court and for the entire 10 months that this was on trial, they kept a vigil and waited for Manson to be released. And you can watch video of them being interviewed and Squeaky was pretty much the spokesperson for the family at the time and she's been interviewed and you can watch videos of her where she's like, we're just waiting for him to get released. We know he's going to be released. Hmm. Like totally believing. I don't know if I would say in his innocence, but like totally believing that he would be released. Like everything's justified. So yes. he's going to be able to go. Like they all just seem completely out of touch with reality. So I did say there was only three or two women at first, but Atkins and Kringwinkle, they were charged with seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy each. But Van Houten was also on trial and she had only participated in the LaBianca killing. So she only had two counts of murder and one of conspiracy. So she was not charged in the Tate murders, Mm -hmm. but they were all tried basically together. This was all one trial. So originally Manson was acting as his own attorney, which we all know (laughs) works out very well always. Especially when you are tripping on LSD. Yes. Mm -hmm. But you know, that is his constitutional right. So the judge was (laughs) granting it to him. Sure. But then he began to have, quote, outlandish and nonsensical conduct. Weird. End quote. And would file bizarre motions. He violated a gag order. And so the judge was like, (laughs) we're done here. We're done. (laughs) Listen, if you can't follow the rules, you can't be your own attorney. So he actually filed an affidavit of prejudice against the judge. And that judge was actually replaced by another judge that was Judge Charles Older. So he got the judge fired. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) All right. So July 24th is the first day of testimony. Manson shows up and he has an X carved into his forehead mm-hmm. right between his eyebrows. And if you have ever seen a picture of Manson, which I'm sure you have, this is probably what you remember. Mm-hmm. So he issued a statement <clears throat> that he was, quote, considered inadequate and incompetent to speak or defend himself and had X'd himself from the establishment. I'm going to put that because that's kind of like the implied world. Okay. So he was pissed that they wouldn't let him defend himself. So he's like, I'm going to X myself out. (laughs) Go for it. The females soon did the same thing to their foreheads, as most of the family members waiting outside did as well. Later, he did transform this X into a swastika tattoo that he had until the day that he died. All right. So prosecution argued the triggering of Helter Skelter as the main motive. And they talked about this race war frequently. So they said that there were several references around the crime scenes and Manson's predictions of his end times. Defendants, though, argued that the writing in blood on walls was to copy the Hinman murder, and it was not because of Helter Skelter or the race war. Which they totally didn't do. Yeah, they right. totally didn't do. Wasn't them. And, like, it wasn't just Helter Skelter. The Beatles also had a song called Piggies, where it talks about that there's lots of piggies living piggy lives. You can see them out for dinner with their piggy wives clutching forks and knives to eat their bacon. 
That is the literal lyric. Oh, Beatles. And they had their trip trip to to LSD. (laughs) Yes. The prosecution pointed out that Lino LaBianca was left with a knife in his throat and a fork in his stomach, which, again, kind of showed Mm. a connection to the Beatles, which they knew Manson was obsessed with, not like implicating the Beatles here. (laughs) Prosecution stated that Manson told... Kasabian. Kasabian to hide a wallet taken from the scene in a gas station bathroom near a predominantly black neighborhood, like as to frame the Black Panthers here. But defense argued that the wallet was left 20 miles away in a predominantly white neighborhood instead. Who knows if she messed up? Who knows what happened there? But Manson did tell her to hide it in a black neighborhood. She just did not follow through with that. (laughs) So Manson kind of made this trial into a circus, and that's um, putting it nicely. So like I said, family members, they hung out near the courthouse for months. The prosecution even subpoenaed them as witnesses, so that way they could stay out of the courtroom, which I think is kind of a genius move. Like, hey, you're subpoenaed, so you can't come into the courtroom, but you can make noise out here. Because they probably knew what would happen if they were allowed in the courtroom. Oh, God. Can you imagine? So some members outside um, of the family, some family members, sorry, outside carried hunting knives and they were showing them off. They were like on display, but they were all carried legally. So police could not do anything about it. Some family members also tried to persuade other witnesses from testifying. The main ones, Paul Watkins and Juan Flynn, they were both witnesses for the prosecution and they were threatened. Um, Watkins was badly burned in a very suspicious fire in his van. Another former family member, Barbara Hoyt, she was called to testify for the prosecution and was given a hamburger spiked with LSD by another family member. She yeah. had to be taken to the hospital as an overdose, and they she thought that this was a way to silence her. August 4th, Manson gets up and he flashes the jury the LA Times front page with a headline that said, quote, Manson guilty, Nixon declares. Oh, I feel like you shouldn't do that. Yeah, you shouldn't. So, obviously, Nixon is president here. (laughs) And so, Nixon had told reporters that he believed that Manson was guilty, quote, either directly or indirectly. And, of course, this makes headlines. So, LA Times prints it, and then Manson flashes this newspaper saying that this is not a fair trial because the president himself has declared me guilty to the media And the female defendants all stood up and in unison said there was no point going forward with the trial. Quote, Nixon says we are guilty, so why go on? So the defense called for a mistrial at this point. And so Judge Older, he took each member of the jury aside and pulled them um, basically to determine whether this influence, whether this headline had influenced them. And each one of them said that they could still decide independently and that they were not influenced by the president and his headline. So okay. they did not get a mistrial. Seems fair. But I mean, I kind of get. I, I mean, I do too. I kind of get, get where it. Manson was coming from just in that case, because the president says that you're guilty. <laughs> How can you have an unbiased jury? Well, it's kind of like a recent popular case where right. there right. was like a social media storm. And so if that would have gotten to the jury, mm-hmm. it it wouldn't have changed the verdict, but right. it would have heavily influenced them. And I will say later, the jury was sequestered longer than any jury had ever been sequestered before. So chances are they had not seen that headline until he brought that into court. Wow. So he kind of also damned himself there, too. Right. <laughs> October 5th, 
Manson was denied his request to question a witness when his attorneys declined to cross-examine one. He was very upset about this. He leapt over the defense table and attempted to attack Judge Older with a pencil. Oh, boy. Yes. He was wrestled to the ground by the bailiffs and removed from the courtroom while yelling, quote, in the name of Christian justice, someone should cut your head off, end quote. I feel like um, that's probably not a good thing to do in front of the jury. It's not. And also, I don't think that's in the name of Christianity to cut someone's head off. Especially a a judge. Especially the judge. Yeah. So during this, while this is all going on and the bailiffs are wrestling him to the ground, the females had risen from their seats and began to chant in Latin. Oh, gosh. So it just shows like he was controlling the whole thing. Crazy. After this, Judge Older um, started wearing a revolver underneath his robes for the rest Uh, of the trial. I don't blame him. Yeah. November 16th, the prosecution rests after five months and 22 weeks. Not five months, also known as 22 weeks. (laughs) Sorry. That's That's very specific. 22 weeks, weeks and a month. 22 (laughs) weeks of prosecution. That is crazy to me. That is a long time. And that's just the prosecution. But then... Shocking everybody, the defense rested as well three days later, never calling a single witness up. I mean, what can they do? Well, Manson and the women were pissed. Oh. <laughs> so when the defense rested, the women all shouted their disapproval, demanding their right to testify. The judge calls the attorneys into his chambers to talk, and the defense tells the judge that their clients want to testify so they could say that they had planned and committed the crimes and that Manson was innocent. The defense wanted to prevent this, so they rested their case because they knew that the women would take the fall for him. Uh, Which, got to hand it to you. Good job, defense. Right. One of the attorneys uh, for one of the defense for Leslie Van Houten said his name was Ronald Hughes, and he will come up later. Ronald Hughes told the judge, quote, I will not push a client out the window. So he was saying, like, I'm not going to let my client take the fall for this man. Like, the defense could clearly see that Manson was orchestrating everything. Yeah. Um, The prosecution saw Manson advising the women to testify like this to save himself. Uh, Crane Winkle said decades later in an interview, quote, the entire proceedings were scripted by Charlie. So Manson did end up testifying the next day with the jury removed from the courtroom. So he testified. Um, This was done to make sure that he did not violate a Supreme Court decision about making statements to implicate implicate his co-defendants. Plus, the prosecution was fearful that he would use his hypnotic powers, quote. So they're like, fine, Manson, you can testify, but like the jury's not going to listen to this. So it's not going to influence your decision. So he testified for over an hour straight. (laughs) In front of people that don't matter. Yes. In front of just like the women and the judge and his attorneys. They're like, just (laughs) shut up. Just just go for it. Talk. Get it out of your system, man. So some (laughs) of the things he said, and these are all quoted. The music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment. There it is. The man. Why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. It was the Beatles. To be honest with you, I didn't recall ever saying, get a knife and a change of clothes and go do what Tex says. Mm, But you did. These children that come at you with knives, they are your children. You taught them. I didn't teach them. I just tried to help them stand up. Most of the people at the ranch that you call the family were just people that you did not want. Hmm. So after testifying, he told the females that they no longer needed to testify for him. Okay, so the defense has rested. The prosecution has rested. The trial has concluded, except for closing arguments. And then defense attorney Ronald Hughes 
Remember him? He said, I'm not going to yeah. throw my client out the window. Yeah. He goes on a weekend trip. Uh-oh. But he does not come back for closing arguments. Uh-oh. And so things start to get suspicious. So they can't keep prolonging it. They prolonged it for a little bit, but then they were like, we got to keep going. We got to just do closing arguments and wrap this up. It's been going on for five months. So they replaced him with Maxwell Keith and the court actually got delayed for two weeks because Keith basically had to get caught up and review everything. Oh my God. So trial resumed in December and then the defendants led Judge Older to ban the four defendants from the courtroom for the remainder of the case because they were all acting inclusion together. They were putting on a performance for the media and he was like, I'm done with this. This is enough. So January 25th, 1971, the jury returns with guilty verdicts against the four defendants on each count. So now we're on to the sentencing and the penalty phase. The jurors saw that the defense um, that Manson had planned to present and all three women testified that the murders had been conceived, like you said, Sarah, as copycat versions of the Hinman murder, which Atkins had taken credit for. They said that this plan was to draw suspicion away from Bobby Boussoulet and that it had been his idea and not Manson's. Atkins even said that she could um, not say why she had written political piggy at the Hinman murder because they're like that kind of tied it to everything else. And they were like, well, why would you write that if it wasn't Manson's idea? And she had no answer. So (laughs) during the penalty phase or the sentencing phase, it keeps calling it penalty, but I keep thinking sentencing. Yeah. Manson shaves his head and his beard and trims his beard to a fork. I'm trying to imagine like a snake tongue saying, quote, I am the devil and the devil always has a bald head in a quote and a snake tongue beard in a snake tongue beard. (laughs) The female defendants also all shaved their heads, but they waited until the sentencing phase was over because the prosecution believed, you know, and Helter Skelter, he talked about this. He thinks that it was done intentionally because it was obvious that he was, you know, influencing them. And he thought. They waited purposely, so that way it didn't look like they were being influenced. Even though they obviously still were being influenced. Clever. <laughs> because why else would three women just shave their heads? They just all felt like it separately, independently. Yes. 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 No influence whatsoever. <laughs> no influence whatsoever. They didn't talk about it. Yeah. They just did it. Yeah. Weird. I got that same haircut, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How did we all plan that here in jail? Gosh. We are in sync. All right, so March 29th, the jury returns verdicts of death sentences against all four of the defendants. Atkins yelled to the jury, quote, better lock your doors and watch your kids. Oh, well, that's... hate quote. that. Probably not a good idea. Not a great idea. So at the time, this was the longest murder trial in U.S. history. It lasted nine and a half months, and it was called the trial of the century. And the jury was sequestered for 225 days. Longer than any other jury had been. They all probably got paid $10. Oh, my gosh. Like, almost a year. 50 cents. Yes. (laughs) Where you're not allowed to see your family, your friends. You can't watch TV. so sucky. (laughs) That is crazy to me. Um, The trial transcript, fun fact, was in 209 volumes, and it's 31,716 pages long. Did you read it? I did not. I'm so sorry I did not prepare myself better. (laughs) I'm so disappointed. I know. I'm disappointed as well. <laughs> I couldn't even finish the 500-page Helter Skelter book before this. I'm so sorry. All right. So that was on March 29th. So April 19th, Judge Older officially sentences the four to death. But that same day, something suspicious happened. 
Ronald Hughes, the defense attorney, his body is found. Of course. Oh, no. It was wedged between two boulders in Ventura County, and it was rumored that he was murdered by the family. Wow. This has never been proven because his body was so badly decomposed after this many months that they could not find a cause of death. Aw. But they think that he was murdered by the family, and this is a conspiracy, because he was one of the few on the defense team who stood up to Manson and refused to allow him and the women to take the stand and allow the women to plead for his innocence. And family member Sandra Good later quoted and said that Hughes was the first of the retaliation murders, end quote. So who knows? It's not too far-fetched. It's really not too far-fetched. All right. We're going to go back to Tex Watson. So remember Tex? Yes, from Texas. He is from Texas, Texas and he was involved in the murders. He was actually the one who drove them to the Tate murders and told the women, look, this is what we're doing for Charlie. He did most of the murdering. He did. So he had fled to Texas after the murders happened. Text to Texas. He did. He went back home to flee while the rest were hiding in the desert. So he was arrested on November 30th, 1969 in McKinney, Texas, which McKinney is a suburb of Dallas. So this was after LAPD had called Texas and said that his fingerprints, like you talked about, had been found to match a print on the front door of the Tate home. So he was fighting extradition to California long enough to not be tried with the rest, which is why he was not included in this trial. But his trial did start in August, and by October 1971, he was found guilty on seven counts of murder, just like them, and one of conspiracy. Unlike the rest, he presented a psychiatric defense of insanity. Hmm. But the same prosecutor who tried in the Manson case, Vincent Bugliosi, tried this case as well and basically poked holes all through the insanity defense. was like, listen, no. And so Tex was also found guilty and sentenced to death, just like the others. Yeah. February 1972, the death sentences of all five were reduced to life in prison because People versus Anderson, California abolishes the death penalty. Okay. So Manson returns to prison because he had been on death row, and he was pretty much accepted into the Aryan Brotherhood right away, but he was submissive, quote, to a sexually aggressive member of the group, end quote. Ew. <laughs> I said yikes. <laughs> but ew Don't would like. suffice as well. <laughs> we're going to kind of go to the Willett murders. So we're going to fast forward a little bit here. So the four of them, really the five of them because of text, they are all not on death row anymore. They are back in prison. And November 8th, 1972. 26-year-old Vietnam Marine combat veteran James L.T. Willett was found dead by a hiker near Guerneville, California. So he had been forced to dig his own grave, which I think is terrible. And then he had been shot and buried, but very poorly buried. Like when they found his body, one hand was sticking out of the ground. His other hand and his head were missing because of animals, they think. So he really wasn't buried well at all. Um, His station wagon eventually was found outside of a house where several of the family members were living, including Squeaky. Oh, Squeaks. Oh, Squeaks. (laughs) So police get there. They force their way inside, and they arrested several people there and find the body of James Willett's 19-year-old wife, Lauren, buried in the basement. And she had died pretty recently by a gunshot to the head. 
So they're questioning the family. They all are like, oh, it's an accident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. police believed it was because they feared that she would reveal who killed her husband since his body had been reported being found on the news. Um, their infant daughter was also found in the house, but she was alive. So Michael Monfort, he is a family member. He pled guilty to murdering the wife. Uh, Priscilla Cooper, James Craig, and Nancy Pittman all pled guilty as accessories. And then Michael also later pled guilty to the murder of James Willett and James Craig. Another one had pled guilty as an accessory. So pretty much everybody is just like, yeah, it was me. Yeah, it was me. Sure. Why not? So they had been living in the house with the Willets while committing various robberies. Um, they had killed Willett and used his identification papers to pose as him after being arrested for an armed robbery of a liquor store. So police believed that they killed him because he was not involved with the robberies and they feared that he would go talk to the police and report them for using his ID. So we're going to rewind a little bit to 1971. So the year prior, Manson, who's still in jail, obviously, was found guilty of the murders of Hinman and also a oh. man named Donald Shorty Shea. Oh, the nicknames. nicknames. <laughs> All right, so Manson is given another life sentence at this point. Um, add him on. Add him on. So Shorty, he was a Spawn Ranch stuntman. So remember, they lived at the ranch way back mm-hmm. when. And he had been killed about 10 days after an August 16th 1969 raid on the ranch. So if you remember, all of these murders happened in August of 1969. So Mm -hmm. this was just another one. Um, Manson suspected Shorty of setting up the raid and thought that Shorty was trying to get them off of the ranch and get them reported to the police. So just more of Manson's paranoia. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, Also, side note, Shorty was a white man and he was married to a black woman. So they Mm. don't know if this was also... Kind of racially motivated. Yes. Yes. With Manson, where mm-hmm. he was like, hmm, let Probably. me get, you know, let's start not, this war. He was not a nice man. No. Mm-hmm. It's been speculated that Shorty might have known about the Tate and LaBianca killings too as another motive for Manson to kill him, to silence him. Gotcha. Um, so family members Bruce Davis and Steve Clem Krogan were also found guilty of Shorty's murder in separate trials from all of the other trials that are going on. 1977, a few years later, police find the remains of Shorty. So they didn't even have his body. But finally, one of the members, Steve Krogan, who was found guilty, he finally drew a map for the police and pinpointed the exact location of the body. And that's how they found it. Fun fact, Krogan, the one who drew a map and located the body, he was the first of the family to be paroled in 1985. Hmm. So not that long, really. Yeah. Less than 20 years, he did. I know that was a lot. (laughs) That was a lot. But basically, there was this huge, crazy trial. And then there was all these other, like, side murders that the family was still doing. Even without Manson's influence. Jeez. All right, Boydson. Okay, I'm going to close this out. So lots of of things happened. My brain is spinning. After the trial. Of the century. Mm-hmm. There's just different things. And we're just going to take it one thing at a time. Okay. So remember Squeaky from? Yeah. Squeaky. The member of the Mason family that wasn't directly involved in the Tate or LaBianca murders, but still a member. She brought the Manson name back into the limelight when she attempted to assassinate 
President Gerald Ford in Sacramento. Oh, squeaks. Can't do that. No, squeaks. Uh, Bad bad squeaks. In the investigations that followed, evidence came forward that Squeaky and another member of the family, Sandra Good, had conspired to send threatening communications through the U.S. mail and send death threats through interstate commerce involving corporate executives and government officials, which is a crime. You can't threaten to kill people, um, especially yeah. not <laughs> important people, subjectively important people. Right. Um, like the president. Or government officials, <laughs> yeah. corporate executives. So Sandra Good was sentenced to 15 years, but only ser- served 10. Squeaky was sentenced to 15 years to life, becoming the first person sentenced under Title 18, Section 84, which made it a federal crime to attempt to assassinate the President of the United States, which I feel like is common sense, but here we are. It's an official mm-hmm. title section. So she briefly actually escaped from prison in 1987 when she tried to reach Manson after finding out that he had testicular cancer. She was apprehended within days, didn't actually get to him. And she was then released on parole in 2009. Which is something crazy about Squeaky. I watched in one of the documentaries, like, she had a gun that she was aiming at, you know, the president, but it was not even a loaded gun. And they still, like... I mean, you just can't take those chances. Right. No, and they didn't know that, obviously, at the time. But they still, like, sentenced her to, you know, for assassination. I'm like, it was an unloaded gun. Like, I get it. Whose side are you on? (laughs) I get it, but I'm just saying, I don't think she had any intent to actually kill the president because she had no bullets in the gun. What was her point, then? I'm wondering. I, I have no idea. She said... In the documentary that she wanted to get his attention. I think it worked. To try to get Manson out and all of this stuff. Uh, and she said, Jesus. if I wanted to kill him, I could have killed him. I was right there. But it, I had no bullets. It. I think she's just crazy. Also <laughs> not very smart. Yes. So, Susan, Denise, Sadie, Adkins. I yes. don't know what we're going to call her. but Susan. Susan. Announced in 2008 that she was suffering from brain cancer. She had applied for compassionate release from prison by which inmates may be eligible for immediate release, early release on the grounds of, quote, particularly extraordinary or compelling circumstances, which could not reasonably have been foreseen by the court at the time of sentencing. So compassionate release was denied in 2009, and she was also denied parole for the 18th time and she died in prison 22 days after her final parole denial in 2008 the associated press reported that forensic investigators had concluded a search for human remains at the ranch this was to follow up on rumors that the manson family killed hitchhikers and runaways who got too close to the ranch and didn't fit in with the family Hmm. So the investigators identified two possible grave sites and recommended digging to find these remains. But there were some delays due to equipment failure and the fact that the county sheriff questioned their methods, but they did end up moving forward with the search um, for the remains. But after only two days of work and four empty dig sites, the sheriff ended the search. So Tex 
Our, our boy Tex from Texas. Mm-hmm. Yes, Tex. He commented publicly that no one was killed at their camp during the entire month and a half that he was there. He says it's fake news. Okay, Tex, I don't believe you because you killed people. I mean, do I think that Manson and the family might have been responsible for more murders? Absolutely. 100%. Definitely they were. Um, especially with how paranoid he was and like picking people off. But you know, but I said insane. earlier that ranch was destroyed by a wildfire. So you would think that would destroy a lot of evidence. Definitely. Like burn bodies. Yeah. Also probably destroyed a lot of fluids. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. I was fluid. thinking bones. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Fluids, bones, the clap. <laughs> yes. And it happened in 1970. So I mean like 2008, that How stuff is gone. How long does the clap live outside of the body? I think a million years. Never clap dies. Never dies. <laughs> It sounds like a bad movie. The next few sections are all about Manson. So as we touched on in the first episode, he began studying Scientology while in prison in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. When he was released in 1967, he traveled to L.A. to meet local Scientologists and attend several parties for movie stars involved in Scientology. He actually completed 150 hours of auditing And I needed a reminder. So for everybody else, a reminder, this is a process whereby the auditor takes an individual through times in their current or past lives with the purpose of ridding the individual of negative influences from past events or behaviors. And there was something I read that said that he actually gained a lot of insight at that time from his, his dive into Scientology. It didn't change anything because obviously, you know, all the murders happened, but he at least knows why he is the way he is. I'm glad he has that insight into himself. <laughs> Speaking of insight, psychology. So ah. <laughs> Manson refused to attend any further parole hearings after March of 1997, possibly because at this particular hearing, the panel noted that he had a history of controlling behavior and mental health issues, including schizophrenia and paranoid delusional disorder, and thus was too great a danger to be released. Mm-hmm. It also noted at the time that he had received 108 rules violations had no indication of remorse, no insight into the causative factors of the crimes, lacked understanding of the magnitude of the crimes, had an exceptional and callous disregard for human suffering, and finally, had no parole plans. Yeah. Watching interviews of him in jail is, like, creepy. Oh, yeah. It's unsettling. It's interesting, though. Like, I, I obviously think he definitely has a, a diagnosis there, oh, for, for sure. sure. But you also have to wonder how much of it was emphasized or mm-hmm. worsened by his drug use mm-hmm. over time. Sure. Well, I also wonder if he's putting some on for the media and, like, this character. Because he likes that. Like, praise. He likes that. Which we'll get to. Yes. So... That attention. Not yet. But on April 11th in 2012, Manson was denied release again, and it was determined that he would not be eligible for parole until 2027 when he would be 92 years old. Okay. I would agree with that. Some of the... (laughs) I think I'll make it, but okay. Yeah. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Oh, no. Does he die? Weird. I don't know. Let's talk about some relationships. Okay. Some ships? 
Right oh, back shipping. to the shipping. Thank we'll, God. We'll ship. <laughs> so in the last episode, I talked about Manson marrying Rosalie Williams. Right. Yes. Um, when he was yeah. like young. Young. He was yeah, a baby. Young. They got pregnant, but he went to prison and she met oh, yeah, another man. Car. Yes. Yes. I'm with you. Charles Luther. No. Uh, <sighs> so their, different. <laughs> their son was named Charles Manson Jr. Oh, I thought there was Who a was Valentine? Oh, that was the other baby. That was with Mary Brunner, the okay. librarian. See? Oh, got it. So Charles Manson Jr. was born in 1956. He changed his, his name to Jay White after his mother married a man named Jack White. I would too. But <laughs> he honestly con- continued to struggle with his connection to Manson. Yeah. Uh, he committed suicide in 93. Um, and his son, Manson, Manson's grandson, Jason Freeman, reported he just couldn't let it go he couldn't live it down he couldn't live down who his father was that's terrible so i also talked about his second marriage to leona or candy steven yes. and that she had the second son charles luther charles luther there okay. it is all right there's really not much known about him some reports say that he changed his name to jay warner and others believe that he might have had a daughter a lot of people think that he has passed away by now yeah. Or he just did like a really good job of yes, just yeah. falling staying off. off the grid. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, Which, understandable for his sake. I I, I hope so. And then there's his third son. I call him Valentine. Okay, uh, I don't know. It just sounds fancier than Valentine. Okay, sorry, Valentine, <laughs> Valentini, Valentini, Michael Manson, uh, Valentinine or Valentine or Valentine. Uh, Val. He goes by Val. Michael Val. Val. Obviously. Val. Perfect. Thank you. He was born in 68, and it's believed his mother was Mary Brunner, um, the first member of the Manson family. He Mm -hmm. openly speaks about his relationship with Manson. After the Tate-LaBianca murders, Val went to live with his maternal grandparents in Wisconsin. And it was at this point that he changed his name to Matthew Brunner. He also has a son... And he gave an interview in 1993 stating that he feels no connection to Manson and that he considers his grandparents to be his real parents. So he's just like... I mean, he was like a year or two old. Yeah. He acknowledges that it's his blood, but also by... Nope. Yeah, he didn't know Nothing to do with him. Yeah. Right. In 2009, an L.A. DJ named Matthew Roberts released evidence indicating that he might be Manson's biological son. His mother claimed that she was a member of the Manson family and left sometime in 1967 after allegedly being raped by Manson. After this, she returned home, discovered she was pregnant, and gave birth the next year. And she put the baby, Matthew Roberts, up for adoption. CNN actually ended up conducting a DNA test between Roberts and Manson's known biological grandson, Jason Freeman, which concluded that the two did not share DNA. Okay. Later, Roberts attempted to establish that Manson was his father through a direct DNA test, which again concluded they were not related. Dude, why why are you wanting to be related? Mm-mm. We'll get to that. Okay. In 2014, Manson was engaged to a 26-year-old Afton Elaine Burton, who he nicknamed Star, because cute. Just so many he's, nicknames. He's her star. She's his star. She's his star. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or either, I guess. Yeah. So maybe they're each other's star. Yeah. <laughs> Adorable. Nope. She had been visiting him in prison for at least nine years. 
uh, you do the math. So, or I'll do the math for you. Thank you. At the age of <laughs> 26, she had been visiting him for at least nine years. Ew, no, don't like that math. Mm. That feels icky. The number 17. I got it. Thank Hate you. it. Hate it. Um, she had maintained several websites that claimed his innocence. Where are your parents at, honey? Um, they obtained a marriage license, but it expired before the ceremony could take place. Oh, such a shame. And it was reported that the wedding was canceled because Manson found out that she only wanted to marry him so that she and a male friend could use his corpse as a tourist attraction after his death. <laughs> what? Sorry. Which is I, uh, also icky. Ew. Kind of think it's funny. Is that really morbid? <laughs> On, I mean, like it's, he kind of deserves so something like, like that. It's really good foresight because you acknowledge like this is a big name and people yeah. are going to be weirdos and want to see him. I guess my next thing is I so would. if she's next of kin, if she's married and next of kin, if he dies, the body goes to her. Is that what yes, I'm assuming? What, yes. Yeah. So she spent seven years of her life trying to get his body. Yeah, so she posts on her website, though, that the reason they didn't marry was because of logistics, that Manson had an infection and had been in the prison medical facility for nearly two months. Bad infection? Yeah. It still (laughs) is not cleared up. (laughs) It stays forever. Everywhere he goes, there's applause after him. keeps on giving, yeah. (laughs) I think that's that's the herb. It's the gift that keeps on taking. But uh, in his face glitter or oh, like confetti yeah, or both yeah because everywhere yeah so <laughs> since he was in the medical facility he wasn't able to get visitors so she still hoped that they could marry someday mm. but and you got an std chat from the tipsy ghost right here <laughs> here you go so on january 1st 2017 manson was rushed to the hospital for gastrointestinal bleeding Oh, he got GI bleed. So at that time, sources reported that he was so weak that doctors wouldn't be able to safely operate him, mm. operate on him for treatment. Which he's older at this point, too. He, he is. So he yeah. recovered-ish and returned to prison on January 6th. And then in November of that same year, he was taken back to the hospital. And on November 19th, 2017, Charles Manson died from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure brought on by colon cancer. Mm. Oh, maybe that's why he was GI bleeding. I was going to say, yeah. Yep. That's that makes exactly sense. right. He died at the hospital at the age of 83. Okay. Man. But that's Son. not all. There is a fight for the body. And because, of course, there was of course a fight for is. the body. So three people wanted to claim Manson's body and the estate. Uh, a man named Michael Channels enters the chat. He, he was Manson's pen pal and claimed to have a will from 2002, which allegedly stated that the entire estate, as well as his body, would be left to Mr. Channels. Hmm. Number two, a friend of Manson's named Ben Gurecki claimed to have a Manson will from 2017, which allegedly stated the estate and the body would go to Matthew Roberts. Uh, This is, if you remember, the L.A. DJ whose DNA was not a match. Okay. And then finally, there is Manson's grandson, Jason Freeman. Why doesn't his attorney have his will? (laughs) The Superior Court in California had to decide on on who gets it there there was no documentation so i think i don't know the logistics i believe it went to 
technical next of kin. So he, the California Superior Court decided in favor of Freeman in regards to the body. Okay. Yes. And he had Manson cremated in March of 2018. Here's where I think it should have gone. Okay. To science. They should have studied his body. The brain. The brain. Mm-hmm. For yes, sure. The brain. Absolutely. But now there remains the question of his estate. And I naively was like, why would this man have any money to for people to want yeah. to, to get? But at the time of his death, Manson's estate was estimated to be worth $400,000. He wrote a book. He wrote a book. Yeah. So here's the thing. How he got that much money is questionable because as of 1971, he would not have been legally able to profit from things like music, mm-hmm. artwork, artwork, book royalties, media appearances, you name it, due to his crimes. You can't I knew there profit. was some law that said that you can't profit while you're in jail. Yeah. That being said, somehow he was able to make money and there's still a fight over who would get it. Well, like maybe if there was like movies or documentaries made about him. Like that's how the Birdman made money. Somebody, yeah. Because they were making movies about him. But you can't. I but maybe he had the but, money go to somebody who put it in his estate. I don't know. I mean, it's just it feels really not great that no, he was able icky. to get this money. I agree. I hate that they sometimes can profit from this. For sure. So that being said, somehow somehow he made the money, and there's still a fight over who gets it. And it's been a long and convoluted legal battle, mainly between the pen pal. Uh, who just as an FYI happens to be a mem- memorabilia collector, conveniently, mm. Jason er, Michael Channels. So he wants the cred versus grandson Jason Freeman. So Channels is hanging on to the alleged will from 2002, and he challenged Freeman by asking the court to make him take a DNA test oh my gosh. because there's maybe some suspicion that he might not actually be related to Manson after all. But in the end, the court so far did not say that he needs to take one. Apparently there's some California law that if you're the first route, so if he would have been his son, then they could maybe make him take it. But since he's a second, so his grandson, they're like, no, it's not in the law. We we're not going to make him do that. And so, and then three and a half years after his death, Thus, three and a half years into the battle over the estate, a third party has come onto the scene, I think in 2021, (gasps) claiming to be Manson's sister. And she wants control over the estate. It's a a big fat mess and it's still ongoing. The money has not gone to anybody. Here's an idea. The money should be donated to all the victims and their families. So there was a 2019 Vox article that summarizes the Manson legacy pretty well. It reads... They upended ideas of safety, security, and innocence and effectively sounded the death knell of the 60s counterculture, ushering in a new decade of darkly psychosexual, conspiracy-laced cultural exploration of America's seedy underbelly. The ritualistic nature of the killings set the stage for the rise of the satanic panic, a phenomenon that never fully went away. And so, fun fact, my mom grew up in California during that time. And so I called her and I was like, do you remember a name called Manson? And she's like, yeah, of course I do. I was like, okay, well, tell me, tell me what you know. And she, um, unprompted said that everything was great. Like it was like free love and people Mm -hmm. were free spirited and like things were just, it was really positive and the outlook was wonderful. And then the headlines hit about these murders and she said it was like a light switch. Like you can, nothing was safe anymore. 
before the murders, people, these young people were getting together in groups and nobody really thought anything of it. Like, okay, let Mm -hmm. them experiment with their drugs. Mm -hmm. But now afterwards, they're the, the idea of a cult and the idea of cult leaders and the, the negative things that come from it really came into the media attention and it really changed the world. So I thought it was interesting that it's not just like, some idealistic view of like, oh, yeah, this this happened and it changed everything. It actually, that's how people's perceptions of this event, what the outlook was. So the book that Lindsay talked about, Helter Skelter, it was written about the Manson family murders by the prosecuting attorney, Vincent Bugliosi. It's a bestseller and possibly the precursor to the true crime literature obsession of today. This book is, it's still a bestseller. It still says, it says the number one true crime bestseller of all time. I mean, I believe it. It was, uh, it was an original. I think it, I think this piqued people's interest. Like, wow, this happens. And I don't know. So books and TV shows and movies and music have all been influenced by Manson and the family. His music is in his own personal music has influenced music by names like the Beach Boys, Guns N' Roses Mm -hmm. and Marilyn Manson, Mm -hmm. just to name a few. Um, there have been over 30 documentaries and fiction inspired by Manson. And that doesn't include like the probably hundreds of skits and stories and spinoffs on various shows and sitcoms over the year in- inspired by the man by Manson and the Manson family murders. And Sarah's friend, Zach Bagans <gasps> has a connection to he's my friend. He, you've met him. I've met him. We took a selfie together. (laughs) Yes. I'll post it in case you guys haven't seen it. Let's stop it. Not only does his Las Vegas haunted mansion have several Manson artifacts, but in 2019, he bought the LaBianca home for a cool $1.98 million, which really jealous of this ghost adventures money. Mm -hmm. Um, He originally bought it as a collector of dark history, claiming that there were reports of paranormal activity and he had plans for a movie production that would take place at the house. But he changed his mind out of respect for the LaBianca family and said that the tragic event should ultimately rest. And he listed it again the next year in 2020 for $2.2 million. It sold in 2021 for $1.8 million. So he took a loss. But he had his name is forever on that house. And of course, Zach and the Ghost Adventures crew investigated the David Omen house, which was built on the site where the Sharon Tate home used to stand. Hmm. Charles Manson received about 60,000 letters per year, including Jeez. letters from children. Oh, so when asked why he thought children wrote to him, he is quoted as saying, I am a child. I never grew up. I never lived in your society. I never went to school. I never had a father. I never had a mother. I raised myself. And Charles Manson is still a household name to this day, over 50 years after his conviction. He is. Uh, He's fascinating in the worst way. And I hate that his name is so well known, but also it is just so oddly fascinating well it's just reinforcement to that kind of behavior but also you know if you think about it he's just this controlling misogynist that he was not very pleasant to women and people and um, he's a raging racist i was gonna say and he's racist yes (laughs) he he is you know a terrible person for many reasons got a swastika on his forehead yeah but a lot of people you know incorrectly 
name him as one of the most prolific serial killers. He is not the serial killer. He's just the leader of the killers, which, I mean, don't get me wrong. He's definitely has a part in it, but he actually wasn't the person doing the murders. Which I think is interesting to me how he got the death penalty in the first place. Because a capital crime, I feel like you actually have to do it. Honestly, I not just be the one to say like, hey, you should do this. I think that just goes to show like how well the prosecution had this. Yes. Like they really did an amazing job just showing how he was able to control these women. You think about something like that in this day and age, like if Mm -hmm. that trial was going on right now, do you think the same outcome would happen? I mean, truthfully, if the person was like not directly involved, I mean, a couple of them, he wasn't even there when the murders took Mm -hmm. place. I think what honestly hurt his case the most was the fact that he was controlling the women throughout the entire trial and everybody could see it. The jury could see it. Yeah. The judge was watching were, it. They weren't hiding that yeah. at all. If they would have tried them separately. I think it might have been differently if they had tried them separately. But the fact that none of them took the stand and they all still got the death penalty. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, well, that was a lot to digest. It was. But I learned a lot. You think you know something, and then you start researching, and you're mm-hmm. like, I know nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like, yeah, we've all heard of this case, but sure. just the amount of information that goes with this case. Oh, yeah. Is I'm wild. sure there's more, even, than what we've covered. Oh, yes. This here. was a very, very, very brief overview of it. I feel like <sighs> we could do like a two month long episode on this thing. Man. We could do a whole podcast on just the Manson family. I don't feel like it. Okay. <laughs> Boyd Sin does not. I do. I feel like he could do a whole series on it. No, I mean, I know you could. I just don't want to. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to either. So um, maybe for our next podcast, we'll think about it. But for now, we're done with Manson. We are done. We're breaking up. We're never, ever getting back together. You take your clop and shove it. <laughs> up your ass. Oh. I don't know. Okay. I mean, that, right. was, that was Johnny Cash, a spinoff of Johnny Cash, but it's fine. Okay. It's fine. All right. I missed it. I don't know Sorry what's happening that. anymore. <laughs> I don't want to hold your hand. That's a Beatles reference. Ooh. I want to hold your hand. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All, All right, guys. <laughs> We're going to end this because this is a very long episode and I'm <laughs> so sorry. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to our two-part episode about Charles Manson and the Manson family murders. You can always find us at thetipsyghost.com or send us an email to thetipsyghost at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star rating and a great review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it, and it really does help. All right, guys. Thanks so much. We will catch you next week. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.